afternoon to all of our fellow health enthusiasts. My name is Aubrey Mast and I'm a professor of nutrition. This is a new podcast developed by my friend and colleague, Dr. Charles Benz, and we call the show Healing Trends with Dr. Benz. We search the internet every day to find the best scientific studies that can be used to improve the health of every interested person. You will not see many of these studies in the conventional media because most doctors do not have the time or the interest in finding them. And there are special interests that are also less than enthusiastic with you knowing about the studies. Every week we will explore nutritional science that has the potential to prevent and even reverse 90% of chronic illnesses. This could save many lives and help to stop the healthcare crisis that will eventually bankrupt our country. This is frequently called functional medicine and has been adopted by thousands of doctors, as well as some medical schools and hospitals, including the Cleveland Clinic. Today's program is entitled Patients and Voters, Taking Control of Your Health. Hello, Dr. Benz. Hi, hi, Aubrey. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Well, this this came about because I was doing I was watching a webinar from Fullscript, and um, there was two very very well known and respected PhDs and MDs on the program, and they were talking about adherence and and uh, compliance. In other words patients uh, not sort of paying attention to what the doctors want to do and not knowing how to get the doctors to kind of get the patients to say, okay, we're going to follow, uh, follow the program that the doctor recommends. And I thought to myself, you know, I think they have it all wrong. I, I think that the, the patients should be the ones controlling the whole, uh, the whole ball game and that doctors are an asset and a tool to be used effectively by the patients. And so, if you look at the uh, statistics, I think the patients assume that uh, about 90% of, of them, I think, assume that the doctor has all the answers and that uh, they're, they're only going to uh, react whenever they get an illness of some kind that's diagnosed. And in fact, in, in, in my experience, the doctors that I have dealt with over the last 30 or 40 years, they know very little about nutrition. They know very little about genes or toxins or about nutritional supplements. Um, they, they really don't know how most disease begins. Uh, they don't know how to prevent it. They don't know how to reverse it. And they don't know what the early warning signals are. And so a lot of doctors are kind of, I don't know, like mechanics are kind of going through the motions and unless your, your car or your, in this case, your body breaks, they really don't have anything. And, and so the patients do very little reading on their own. And so they go into the doctor's office blind without any ideas about, about questions to ask. And then they're just at the whim of the doctor to say, okay, your blood test says this and it says that, we should take this drug or we should do this. And the patients are just you know, blindsided and really don't know where to go. Now, I know that's not a majority of patients, that's not you and me and a lot of other people, but too many patients are in that, that category. And I just wondered what your take on that was because you, know, you, you also have students and you have people that you've helped in workplace wellness. What's, what's your take on this whole patient advocate thing? So fascinating. I had an interesting conversation this weekend with a, a nurse who is over cardiac surgery, and she's responsible for intaking um, cardiac patients. And I was talking to her about you know uh, the diseases and the illnesses that she's seeing within her patients, and it brings up this point where I was talking to her about you know the uptick in the 
surgence of um, type 2 diabetes and heart disease rates that have gone up through the pandemic, uh, along with obesity trends, like everything is trending, chronic diseases are trending higher than they were prior to the pandemic. Um, and she was saying, it's really fascinating. I have patients and I call them and I'll say, oh, well, you have diabetes. And they'll say, oh, no, but I don't have diabetes. But she's looking at the medications, which are for diabetes. But there's a disconnect from them understanding um, not only what medication they are on for treating a disease, but also what that actually means around like their pathology around that having the disease. And when we look at integrative practices, the thing that I love with working with patients or clients and students is that in integrative medicine, the number one component of creating an integrative practice is its patient-centered care, meaning that the doctors are there to support what the patient is intuitively aware of with what's occurring in their body. So there would not be this disconnect of, oh, I don't have heart disease, even though I'm on five medications to treat high blood pressure, high cholesterol, hypertension. Right? The, in that model of patient-centered care, we would see more individuals being like, oh, I have heart disease and I have an acupuncturist. I go to the massage therapist. I have a doctor and I do meditation to help with mitigating my heart, my blood pressure or whatever symptomology they're experiencing. Well, <laughs> if, if, if the ads on TV are any indication, the one, the one that shocks me the most going, going down the path that you just sort of put me on, uh, the guy's in the restaurant and he's got this patch on uh, that, that he can touch to see what, what his blood sugar is. And based on the blood sugar reading at that moment, he then can look at the menu and eat things based on based on whether his blood sugar is in a good range or not. And, and I almost fell off my chair the first time I saw it. I thought, do you mean to tell me that they're selling a product that actually is gonna let this person eat the wrong foods just because his blood sugar was good at the time that he was in the restaurant? I, I, I just almost lost it. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I gotta tell you, it was one of the most ridiculous things I ever, I, I ever saw. And so when, when you look at this whole picture and you see that, 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 that patients aren't willing to really change their habits, I mean, get them to try to change a food habit. You know how hard that is. Get them to try to, <laughs> to exercise more or do the stress management thing with meditation like you talked about, uh, or even stop drinking alcohol or, or smoking or doing recreational drugs. Getting people to change any of these things is so incredibly difficult. And, and one of the reasons is a lot of these people are addicted. And so they're addicted to carbohydrates. They're addicted to sugars. They're addicted to alcohol. They're addicted to smoking. I'm telling you that this is not a common thing that is discussed by doctors, the level of addictions that are, that are occurring in the office. And they really don't have a clue about how to treat them. If they diagnose it as, a, as a, an addiction to something, then they can more or less refer it to another doctor because the general B, the, uh, doctor will not be able to deal with this. And yet, probably 70 or 80% of patients are addicted to something. And so my question is, how do we get the patients to understand that they have these addictions get them to do some research on their own about how to deal with it, and then go to the doctor's office and ask some decent questions. 
about how they can work together to get this thing done, because the doctors don't seem to be doing it on their own unless they're a functional or a nutritional or, you know, a natural doctor. So where, 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 do, you, where do you go to push them in that direction, Aubrey? Well, I think first, I go back into food, the food system and the food politics. You know, there's open access transcripts that were available since the early 2000s with the American Dairy Association, meeting with um, physicians and meeting with USDA and corporate interest players. And they're talking about this very thing of addictions, specifically within dairy, there is a component, a protein found in dairy that's called casomorphine. And what happens in your brain is it elicits the same response as taking morphine. And so that's known from the American Dairy Association. And so there is a movement to have more Americans eat more dairy, because not only do we live in a capitalistic society where we want people to consume this product, but also if you're addicted, then you keep coming back, right? And so that piece is that it's not just on the asking the doctors pertinent questions, it's also recognizing that our food system and the lack of nutritional intake is directly influential around the medical um, symptomologies that are arising in that if we look at the doctors to have these magical answers for us, they do not have the magical answers because they're not trained in nutrition, just like our food system is not delivering nutrient-dense foods, it's delivering nutrient-depleted foods. And so I think that piece becomes really important to become an informed consumer, which is to recognize that the food system does not have your best interest at play. And asking the doctors for nutritional knowledge is you're only going to get so far if unless you are using somebody that is actually integrative and functionally trained. Wow, you, you, just, you just said a mouthful because I, I, I look at the ads on TV and I, I don't know, 90, 95% of them are ads for food that is not only addictive, it's got sugar in it, it's got salt in it, it it's got so many bad ingredients. And yet, when, when the FDA uh, forces the drug companies to actually say what some of the side effects are of the drugs that are advertised on TV, there's nothing about food. There's no, nothing about how it's going to change your blood pressure or how it's going to affect your immune system or how it's going to affect other parts of your body. And so to me, this whole thing about food is medicine. If food is medicine, for God's sakes, let's show that that's the case and put some guidelines together. And, and, and I don't know who was going to do this except for our elected people to, to try to make sure that those ads even tell the person at the end of the ad uh, this food has a moderate nutritional benefit, or this food has no nutritional benefit, something like that. And so you, you, you look at these, uh, these opportunities, people have these opportunities where they could be learning things, but they're not learning those things because the, the mainstream media is 70 to 80% of the, of the avenue of the revenue comes from uh, prescription from big pharma and or big food I mean you look at all the ads it's all about food or it's about prescription medications and so when you look at the person's opportunities to actually be influenced in a positive way they just don't exist and so the average person is just not taking control of this whole situation and as a result they're a pawn and so they're, they're being played by the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry for their benefit. And 
I think most, most patients don't even understand or appreciate the influence of these uh, super powerful organizations in the, in, in, and also the medical community. Uh, they, they have their lobbyists for the American Medical Association. And anytime somebody comes up with something that looks like it might be halfway decent, um, they start to attack them. And, and, and this to me just, just seems very criminal. And so when, when you look at the, the upshot of this, that 80% of chronic disease is preventable, and yet we only spend 5% of healthcare dollars on prevention. Why is that? <laughs> because there's lots of money to be made. And who wants to prevent things when you're going to you know, cut the revenue stream of all of these companies? 70% of Americans have a chronic illness. You know, 60 years ago, that was 10%. And so what's the cause of that? All the things that we've been talking about are, are the cause of that. And 70% and of adults are overweight. Why are they overweight? Because they're not eating nutritional food. If they were eating nutritional food, the weight will come off. You don't even need to have a diet. If you eat the right foods, your body will go to the correct weight. I mean, it's just amazing. I've had people tell me, once I started eating more vegetables and less of this and less of that, I didn't feel the urge to eat anymore <laughs> as much as I did before. I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Have, have your have your patients and your uh, students said the same thing once they started to eat healthy foods? Completely. And it's always the shock of like, well, what do you mean I don't have to count calories? Well, if you're eating quality nutrients, there's no need to count calories. The only place that we're looking at calories is in processed and refined foods. And when we cut those out, all of a sudden you have more energy, you're sleeping better, you have greater fiber and the weight just sort of melts off. Yeah, it's, it's quite of a miracle because the body really does self-regulate itself. It's a thing called homeostasis. And homeostasis okay. is everywhere in the body. It's in the blood. It's, it's in every part of the body. It has this ability to balance itself. The same thing with weight. If you eat the right foods, you'll be at the right weight within a couple of months. I can almost guarantee it, unless you weigh like four or 500 pounds. But when you, when you look at this, 90% of American adults and children have multiple nutritional deficiencies. This has been proven by the Centers for Disease Control by Stanford University Medical School, by North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina, by the uh, can uh, cancer National Cancer Institute. They all agree. And yet, when I do workshops and I ask people, how many people think they have a pretty good diet? 90% of people put up their hands. Then I do the workshop, and at the end of the workshop, I say, how many people think they have a good diet? Nobody puts up their hands because they haven't been confronted with the reality of what really is a good diet. So I'm sorry, but the word delusional comes to mind. I mean, a lot of people are suffering from delusion about whether they're eating a good diet or not. And this is kind of the leading edge of this whole problem with healthcare, where unless they get a disease diagnosis, then they think they're doing fine. And these symptoms, oh, well, those are natural. They just sort of happen. And by the way, disease just happens too. And so when, when you look at this, it's like they collectively look and so say, so-and-so is not as, not as bad as I am. I mean, they're worse off than I am. Everybody can find somebody who's in worse health than they are. And when they do that, that's another part of that rationalization process. And so when you look at this in terms of our economy, it looks like from this British economist that did a study, 100% of the GNP of our country will be consumed by the year 2065 from the cost of healthcare. 
And, and I just, I can't believe that this is the fact. And yet it, it's, on, it's on its path to do that. And a vast majority of politicians are being elected by almost every one of them getting a majority or a lot of their contributions from food and drug industry. And so what can we do, Aubrey? What, what are some of the things that you think we should talk to our listeners and say, you know what? You need to take control of your health as a patient and as a voter. What are some things that you think you know, they could look into? Well, I think the role of politics is something that we're definitely going to get involved in in a little bit. Um, you know, I'm also, clearly, because I'm a professor, I b- d- deeply believe in the power of education. And so um, I've talked several times before about the Environmental Working Group. Org, ewg.org they are fantastic if you think hey i wonder if there's something in my food that could be addictive or i wonder if there's something in my food that is a known carcinogen they're a great group an advocacy group that will help you become aware of what is actually lurking in those potato chips or um, in the frozen food that you're purchasing and beyond that i also think reading 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 is essential um, Marian Nussel, Michael Pollan are some of the big people that I think are doing really amazing work around food education as it relates to how the American Medical Association intersects with our food industry and how they're very much involved in an outcome of making sure we're eating foods that are keeping us very unwell. And so I think those are several places to begin. And I know we've talked about it before, but getting to know your local food economy is probably the best thing that we all can do, not only for environmental reasons, for mental and physical health, but also for our local communities to um, invest in and then really uplift. Well, I don't know whether you know this or not, but several years ago, I actually wrote a book called Electing Better Politicians, A Citizen's Guide. <laughs> and I wrote it back in the, back in the uh, 1990s. And I wrote uh, one version in Canada, and then I wrote another version when I came to the States. And they're still selling, even though they're like 20-some years old. They're still selling because people still want to say, how can you possibly elect a better politician? And in one of the magazines, national magazines, uh, National Civic Review actually asked me to do a review of the book to see if I could update it in, in some way. And so it's on 2018, I did a kind of an update. But at that time, whenever the book was hot in the 90s, there would be people taking this book to these voter meetings. In other words, there'd be candidate meetings, you know, where they would go and be able to ask the candidate questions. And in one of these meetings, I was there, there were 600 people there, and I guarantee you 80% of them came to the, 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 the microphone with either a copy of the book or a copy of the magazine article uh, that had been printed, or the newspaper article about the, uh, my book. And they were asking questions right out of the book. And the politicians couldn't answer the questions. And I tell you the truth, out of 11 commission members, elected commission members, 10 of them got unelected that, that year. <laughs> and, and, I, and the community, I, I ran into a woman on, on the street several months later, and she came up to me and says, hey, you're that guy that wrote that book about uh, citizens uh, electing better politicians. And that's, that's who told me. She said, you know that we unelected 10 of those buggers. <laughs> 
And I thought, isn't that amazing that the book actually worked? It was just one, one example, but I'm sure there are other communities that did the same thing. And so these are some of the questions I think that you have to start asking your local and, and your state and your federal politicians. What are you going to do about the drug ads? Where there's only one other country in the world, New Zealand, that allows dr drug ads. When are you going to take a stand on that? And are you going to take a stand on that? You must ask your politicians that question. And the second one would be, and how about the foods? There's no monitoring of the foods. There's no controls over how bad these foods are and how harmfully they are to our kids who have to see those ads every day and say, mommy, I want this and mommy, I want that. Uh, there should be some control over that. And, and so those are two questions that every person should be asking their politicians at every level every time they get a chance, either by email or by mail or in person in the voter things. What do you think about that as an idea, Aubrey? I think those are great questions to ask. Absolutely fantastic. Well, uh, one that came up recently that uh, I, I cry for the, for the people who were presenting this case is they, they had a daughter with a terminal illness and uh, they were pleading with uh, the doctors to be able to use this experimental treatment that was out there that had very, very high level of hope for, her, for this child. And they, they, they went to Congress, they, they presented their case, and they reported that this had been done many times before with many other illnesses, and nothing is ever done about it. So there's another thing you can ask. People that have diseases that are going to cause them to die within the next six months or a year, they should be able to experiment or get those experimental drugs and be able to have access to them. What better way to determine whether they're actually going to work or not if there's nothing else out there that is good enough or better than what the experimental drugs are showing, then for God's sake, let the experimental drugs be used. And so if you get a chance to sign a petition on any of these experimental drugs, and you can go online and they're out there, and you can sign a petition or you can you know, ask your congressman to start pushing on this, is the only way it's going to get done is if you elect people who will sponsor these kinds of, of this kind of medication or this kind of legislation. And the final one I would, would mention is wellness incentives. Employers have to be given incentives to get their employees to be healthier. Some of that has been written into what we used to call the Obamacare program, but that's been whittled away in the last three or four or five years by that president that we all know about. And they need to be reinstated and strengthened because the insurance companies whittled away at that legislation before it was passed and made it weaker than it could have been. I think it's now time to step up and put some serious incentives in there so that people are able to find out whether they're on a pathway to some chronic illness and find a way to prevent it before it actually happens. That technology exists and we should make sure that every doctor knows about this. So going back to your point, Doctors need to be educated better, and a politician should demand that. And, and the citizens have to demand it before the politicians will. So what's your final words on this, Aubrey? Because I think we laid out a lot of ideas out there, but in 30 minutes, we really can't save the world. But at least we, I think we gave some ideas for people. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that I have anything else to contribute because I think we've laid a lot of good scenarios and good opportunities forward. 
Yes, I think that just people have, are so busy in their own lives, they don't seem to realize that um, they're advocating their responsibility. And then they're allowing the special interests to take control. And when you allow the special interests to take control of your health, that means it's a proportionate reduction in your control. So the bottom line is the only way that you're going to gain back control of your health and your family's health is for you to take control of the relationship between you and your doctor. Do your research. Ask your questions. Find out what the blood tests are that are going to find out whether you have something going in the wrong direction before it becomes a disease. Those blood tests do exist. And so you need to take responsibility to be an advocate for your own health. And so that's the, that's the number one thing that I think we're going to try to end our program on today is become an advocate for your own health and for your family's health. And make sure that if you have a chance, uh, don't just go to the voting booth. And that's a good responsibility. But your real responsibility, 90% of your responsibility comes before you go to the voting booth when you need to find out who these candidates are and how they're gonna influence your life in the future when it comes to your health and your family's health. So I think with that, I'll say I wanna thank our sponsors, our, our sponsors that have uh, allowed us to put this program together and, and all the programs that we've presented over the last several months. Uh, the first one is Southern Trust Financial Planning. I think they're really a unique financial planning company. Most of them only care about whether their clients make a lot of money and uh, whether the stock market's working for them or not. But I think the ones that are conscientious, like Southern Trust Financial Planning, they care about their clients' health and the, and the health of the family of their clients. So they provide workshops uh, every year. Uh, they've been doing workshops for me so that their clients can learn how to live a longer and healthier life with the gains that they've had through the money they've earned and the money they've invested. Another one of the uh, good and responsible companies that is our sponsor is DHA Labs. They're one of the most progressive labs in the country. I mean, they've been at it for 60, 70 years doing the, the best wellness, immune system, and cancer tests. Uh, these, these early warning tests that I refer to a lot of the times. DHA Labs is the leader in this, and they have 600 different tests that, that they can provide. And, and so many of the panels that I developed uh, over the last two or three years are in their platform and they're used by organizations like employers and doctors. And so DHA Labs, a really great lab, and I think you can use them individually and you can use them in the organizations you may belong to. And Paddock Pools, um, they're, they're, I think, the maker of the healthiest pools in the country because they have something that most other pool manufacturers don't have. They have a vacuum extractor that actually takes the chlorine gas off the surface of the water, makes the air that you're breathing about 95% free of the chlorine and the other pollutants that are in that gas. And so when you can breathe better oxygen, you're gonna get better exercise. You're not gonna get depletions of zinc and vitamin D3 from, from consuming those chlorines. And so I think Paddock Pools really needs to get some kind of an award for putting this technology out there. And I hope that the pools in your area are looking to use that technology in their pools. And finally, MPB Health. MPB Health is a medical cost sharing company. 
And medical cost sharing is an alternative to health insurance. And we all know that health insurance is becoming more and more expensive every year. But MPB Health has cut down all the, uh, the administrative costs and the excessive costs and concentrated on wellness. And they've got their fees down to about 30 to 50% less than the insurance companies do because they're focusing on wellness. And they have these advanced tests that we've been talking about. And they negotiate the best price for your hospital or for your doctor. So MPB Health is one of many medical cost sharing companies out there, but I don't think there's any of them that are doing a better job around wellness than MPB Health. Those are our sponsors for today. I'd like to thank Aubrey again for this program and for all the work she does on behalf of us and, uh, and the listeners. Thanks again, Aubrey. Bye for now.